Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Last week, we spoke to Jonathan Shannon, who is head of opinion at The Guardian, about facts and opinion in the current polarised age. And since then, at The New York Times, that question has blown up, and it's almost blown up that newspaper. So Jonathan's back to help us understand what's going on. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, David. I think we should try and sketch out what it is we're talking about for people who maybe aren't quite as inside this story as we are, I think we should say up front, this isn't really a declaration of interest on your part, but you do hold at The Guardian, which is in some ways a sister newspaper of the New York Times, the role that was held by James Bennett, who has just resigned at the New York Times. Is it fair to say that? I would say that within The Guardian, yes, that there are big differences, which we'll come to in a moment, between the way that the New York Times is structured managerially or kind of editorially. The other difference worth noting, I suppose, is that my job does not encompass management of the editorial board, which writes the leaders, and that is part of Bennett's job. But what seems significant, and maybe I should just say it now, is that in the New York Times, there has been always a a very overt separation between the news side of the paper and the opinion side of the paper. So something unique about James Bennett's position is that he did not report to Dean Bacay, who was the editor-in-chief of the New York Times. He reported straight up to Arthur Salzberger, AG as they call him, who is the publisher. And you do report to Kath Viner? I report to Kath Viner, yes. I mean, The Guardian doesn't. I don't think any British newspaper has this structure. So let's just briefly sketch out for people who don't know. So it starts with an op-ed that was commissioned and then published by Tom Cotton, a Trump-supporting Republican. It was given the headline, send in the troops, and then all hell broke loose. So just sketch it out for us. How did all hell break loose? So this was just after we talked, I think. So Tom Cotton is a senator from Arkansas. He's very young. I think he's about 43. He's a Harvard graduate and a former soldier, I believe, a veteran. He represents, I suppose, a kind of next generation Trumpism, if you will. I think he's he's someone who certainly is seen and probably sees himself as a possible future Republican presidential candidate. Cotton wrote a piece suggesting that the way to address the chaos taking place on the streets of American cities was to send in the military. 
he says, some elites have excused this orgy of violence in the spirit of radical chic, calling it an understandable response to the wrongful death of George Floyd. Those excuses are built on a revolting moral equivalence of rioters and looters to peaceful law-abiding protesters. And he also said, and I think the phrase that's become notorious is that one thing above all else will restore order to our streets, an overwhelming show of force to disperse, detain, and ultimately deter lawbreakers. That phrase, an overwhelming show of force. Strong, strong stuff. I think we could all agree. What I think is most notable, most relevant for the purposes of the conversation we're about to have is that the pushback, I suppose, against the publication of this piece began inside the New York Times, or rather, you know, presumably it began outside the New York Times, but it was very quickly picked up by staff members of the New York Times on what I guess must have been Wednesday night, the night that the piece was published. Um, I can remember before going to bed seeing some people starting to post on Twitter about this. And I think you might know this better than me if you have the, the dates at your fingertips. I think the same night, maybe, or maybe first thing the next morning, the New York Times published a piece about the disquiet inside the New York Times over the Tom Cotton piece. And then James Bennett made a statement which was also published in the New York Times. And one of the extraordinary things about this story is it's all in the New York Times, all of the things that we're talking about. So James yeah. Bennett, the um, the equivalent of you, the head of opinion, but also in a different role from you, trying to justify it, but it was a pretty agonized justification. He more or less ended by saying he wasn't sure whether he'd done the right thing or not, but he justified it in the name of a newspaper of the New York Times readership and record needing to publish a wide range of views. It was that kind of defense. Though he was already, it was clear, very uncomfortable. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to look at, this piece that he wrote, which was, I think, kind of part of a newsletter that goes out to, to New York Times subscribers, but then they put it on their website, where he says, I'm not in favor of deploying federal troops. And the Times editorial board has argued against such propositions, in, including Trump's use of federal forces in Washington. I referred when we spoke last week to a kind of classical model, I called it, which governs a lot of our thinking about the relationship between the press, the public, and power. And Bennett's defense of the Tom Cotton piece is very much in the spirit of one aspect of that classical model, especially as it has been interpreted at American newspapers, and especially at the New York Times, we can maybe talk more about this. He says, we published Cotton's argument in part because we've committed to Times readers to provide a debate on important questions like this. It would undermine the integrity of independent and independence of the New York Times if we only published views that editors like me agreed with. So this is, you know, a familiar argument. And I suppose probably an argument I would say that no one disagrees with. I don't think you could find anyone in journalism, including me, who thinks that the purpose of an opinion section is to publish pieces that reflect the views of the editor. 
or that you should only publish pieces that reflect the views of the editor. Uh, it's a bit of a straw man, I suppose, in that regard, right? We'll get onto the deeper questions that that throws up. I think we probably need to complete the timeline. For yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Still I'm don't know where we're heading. Here. It's very hard not to get drawn in. That's part of what's so extraordinary about this story. At every stage, these huge issues open up. So Bennett and the New York Times itself eventually publishes this kind of slightly agonized defense, but disquiet grows. The New York Times also publishes on those same opinion pages an op-ed from one of their columnists, Michel Goldberg, which is headlined Tom Cotton's fascist op-ed. Tom Cotton himself tweets about his views about being called a fascist by the newspaper that's just published his own opinion. But in the end, the opposition grows. And yesterday, James Bennett resigned. And the paper, as I understand it, gave as the reasons for his having to step down that this piece that was published on his watch did not live up to the newspaper's standards. But these were framed in, again, fairly classical terms, standards of fact-checking. It had been poorly edited. The piece was badly expressed. The implication being, I suppose, that there was a version of this piece that would have been acceptable and this wasn't. And now we're really into the heart of it. But that's yeah. where we are now, unless I've missed something out. Have I missed any crucial steps well, out? I mean, so the, the, the newsroom revolted. I mean, that's the other thing. I'm slightly lost track of the actual day-by-day TikTok of it. But I think by Thursday or Friday, they had appended, in addition to Bennett's explanatory note, if you go to see the Tom Cotton piece now, it has a very long editor's note at the top, which says things like, you know, beyond those factual questions, the tone of the essay in places is needlessly harsh and falls short of the thoughtful approach that advances useful debate. So they were already stepping back from it. I think there was quite a lot of activity inside the Times over the course of Thursday and Friday. A lot of stuff started to come out about, you know, what people were saying in internal Slack channels. I mean, it's very interesting, right? All of this is happening at a moment when no single person is going into the office of the New York Times, which is another interesting element here. And I think one of the things that came out was that Bennett himself said, I believe, that he had not read the piece before it was published. I'm not sure what the sourcing on that is, but but I, I I've seen it reported. Yeah, I read. I place, I saw the same. Yeah, which I think is a is a notable development. I've spoken to other editors who professed some surprise at that. Can I ask you straight out? Would do you read everything that appears? Well, no. So this is what I was. What I was going to say is that I think it's understood, and and this is where it's important to say, you know, right, Bennett occupies a much more senior position in the New York Times hierarchy than I do in the Guardian hierarchy, right? Bennett probably has 100 people who report to him. I wish I had 100 people who reported to me, but I don't. So it's understandable. And, you know, you could ask this question about our bosses, right? The editor of The Guardian is not expected to read every single piece that The Guardian publishes because The Guardian publishes 200 pieces a day or, or whatever the number is. It's probably higher than that. What I would say from my own experience is that while I don't read everything we publish, I read everything that I think might be a problem or everything that I think is going to need my eyes on it. And I think that's one, you know, we'll come to the sort of various forms of, of sort of norms and standards and justifications that, that one could put forth for whether it was a good idea to publish this piece or whether it was a bad idea to publish this piece. I think from a very pragmatic perspective of sort of editorial management, you would have to say that if you didn't anticipate that a piece like this 
was going to stir up quite a lot of anger, that's a big oversight, I think. So it is clear that there was a lot of internal pressure. There was also some kind of virtual collective meeting at which Bennett tried to explain himself. Clearly, in the end, it didn't work. The official position, so it's in that caveat at the beginning of the piece, which is still up. I mean, the New York Times has not taken down the Tom Cotton piece. And it's there in the statement that the newspaper put out. And the, and the newspaper is now covering its own stories about itself because it's on the news pages. So two questions I want to ask you, one of which is, does it really stack up this line that what was wrong here was the tone, the way in which the piece was edited, the way in which it was fact-checked? I mean, this is an article in an op-ed page by a politician. I mean, I don't know what your experience is of commissioning and editing articles by politicians with a strong point of view, but is it true that there was a version of this that would have been more professional and would have been acceptable and this one wasn't? And would the politician have accepted that? I just don't understand it. There are a lot of things to unpack there. Look, I think you're right. One way to cut to the heart of what we're arguing about here is to ask, is there a version of this that would have worked? And I use the word worked advisedly because I'm not sure what other standard you could apply, right? Something that strikes me is that I think, paradoxically, you could imagine a version of this piece that I think might be found more palatable if it was not written by a United States senator, whereas, paradoxically, I think the New York Times wouldn't have published that piece if it was not written by a United States senator, if that's making any sense, right? I think part of what has made people uneasy about this piece is the power of the person speaking. Now, that also, I think, opens up various paradoxes because some people would say, well, you could cover Tom Cotton's views on the news pages, that if you think it's essential for people to understand that a United States senator has these views, then it's not the duty of the opinion pages necessarily to inform people of the views that United States senators hold. They have other platforms that are available to them. The counterargument there would be that this is an important person who has something of consequence to say. Can I push you on that? I mean, because that, that was going to be my second question. So we've collapsed them into each other, which is the argument has been made that in this case, the news bit in that church-state separation at the New York Times, the news division could have covered this, and you're doing something completely different by allowing it to appear on the opinion pages. Do you yeah. agree? Well, yeah, I think so. You know, I think we might have to roll back just a bit here, because let's go back to the New York Times post hoc rationalization, or the unjustification, so to speak, for having published the piece. What I see in those texts, of which there are now, as, as, as you and I have just been saying, more than a few, is a what I would describe as a futile attempt to cite universal, non-normative justifications for not publishing the piece. So to talk of fact-checking, to talk of tone, to talk of the editing process. Now, it may be true that these flaws were evident in the process, but I think there is a yearning, shared by almost everyone, to find sort of nonpartisan standards 
for judging these things. You will know from our conversation last week that, that I'm not convinced such standards can be found. That's at the heart of this, really, is there are no rules or even, I would say, even settled norms about what you should and shouldn't publish, right? There's limited space. Editors have to make decisions. I think while there is reason to worry, as many people do, that people generally are less tolerant, I suppose people would say, of views they find very disagreeable, I don't think anyone thinks that it's the job of a newspaper opinion page to publish every view on every issue, or even the job of a newspaper opinion page to deliberately provoke. There are circumstances and cases where an editor may decide that, you know, it's important to have a provocative view or a competing view or a view that runs against what the editor thinks of as the, as the sort of settled consensus of, of his or her readers. But I think we're deceiving ourselves if we believe that you can have this conversation in a way that is not sort of basically done on a case-by-case basis. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So the New York Times should have said, with hindsight, we shouldn't have published this piece simply because this was not a piece that served a useful purpose for us rather than framing it in fact-checking terms. Because there's also an argument, I'm looking at the piece now, it was illustrated with two photographs. Cotton makes this set of historical comparisons and analogies with what Eisenhower, Kennedy and Johnson did during the 50s and 60s around questions of race and segregation, trying to kind of, I suppose, soften his argument in a way. And the publication of the piece used two pictures from the periods he was describing to illustrate it, which actually, when I read it, I thought that was the bit that really jarred. It seemed to be they were going out of their way to kind of say, this is a acceptable historical comparison. And much mm-hmm. of the criticism, not all of it, but a certain amount has been, the editor should have pushed back massively and said, this just doesn't work as a historical. You're not comparing like with like at all. You're twisting. Is there a possibility that you could say more strongly, an editor should have pushed back and if, Cotton hadn't budged, refused to publish because actually the argument was a bad argument. It wasn't the tone. It wasn't the fact checking. It was a bad argument. Yeah. I mean, this raises the question of how do you edit opinion pieces? Yeah. And I have no idea, but you might. Well, I think (laughs) this is maybe getting a bit predictable. I mean, my answer is a bit, well, sort of, it depends. I think your sort of Hippocratic oath, so to speak, as an editor is to try to make the arguments as strong and as coherent and as you know non-contradictory as you can. I think any editor would tell you that when you're dealing with a politician or a public figure or even a very famous writer, a novelist, or write up a celebrity or something, there's a give and take to how you work with those people. And you may decide at a certain point, okay, well, I'm pushing back and the writer doesn't really want to 
engage any further in this. And then you've got a decision to make about whether you think you've got it close enough to what you think is worth publishing. It's definitely the case, and this gets us into the bigger question of, you know, to what extent are newspaper opinion pages obliged or intended to give space or platforms to politicians. I don't think there's any doubt that you you treat a piece by a politician differently than you treat a piece by a regular writer. And The Guardian's published a lot of pieces by politicians. They tend to be politicians of the left. I think you published opinion pieces by all of the Labour leadership candidates and all of the candidates to be deputy leader as well. Keir Starmer was recently published in the Daily Telegraph. Would you publish Boris Johnson in The Guardian? Yeah, I think you would. You know, we've published Theresa May in the past, and I'm sure we've published, this is that was before my time, but I'm sure we've published other conservative prime ministers, and we've published pieces by conservative MPs. We get pitches from, from politicians every day, right? They're announcing some new initiative, they're involved in some NGO that they're trying to publicize. You know, I think the way that we approach this is not so much about the politician as it is about what you think they're doing with this space, which is to say, and again, this gets us into, I think, the kind of impossible struggle to sort of separate news from opinion entirely. Are they saying something newsworthy right now? We might sidebar Tom Cotton for one second, because I think you might yeah, say- I mean, he definitely saying. was saying something, saying something newsworthy. We know that because- um, You know, we- it's um, the news. Early in my tenure as head of opinion at The Guardian, we were sitting down for a meeting one day and one of my colleagues' phones rang and it was a call from Seamus Milne, our former colleague, who said Jeremy Corbyn would like to write a piece. I think it was announcing some new turn in Labour's evolving Brexit position. And my response to this was, what's he going to say? We can't say yes until we know what the substance of the piece is going to be. And at that point, we can then say, okay, well, is this worth doing? Or is this just a bunch of boilerplate that, you know, you can put up somewhere else? And does it matter that the pieces are very rarely written by the politicians themselves? Do you have any qualms about putting things under bylines when special advisor is the author of the words? I've actually never thought about that. Really? Yeah, I think... Who do you deal with when you edit it? It depends on the person. So sometimes you deal directly with the politicians. Sometimes you deal with their office. One of the problems with working with politicians is actually this sense of kind of, oh, well, this has been signed off by 42 different people. And, you know, now we're saying, oh, well, we think this paragraph is not right, or we, we think this should change. And then, you know, it's got to go back through some whole process. This is sort of a byproduct of the kind of um, professionalization of politics, right? That, you know, these things are kind of written by committee now. Yeah, Gladstone used to write his himself. Yeah, and some people Presumably. still do. You know, I mean, um, I've edited John McDonnell before. He writes his own pieces. So I'm going to push you a bit more just to kind of frame it. Would you ever publish a piece by Nigel Farage? It would be hard for me to imagine a scenario in which I thought he was saying something especially interesting or newsworthy for Guardian readers. And Let's go back to Boris Johnson for one second, just because I think he's a slightly easier case. The point I'd like to make about opinion commissioning more broadly, is that, of course, I think there is a sense that our job or our duty is to produce a kind of public sphere, right? 
the public sphere that we are cultivating and promoting is a very guardian public sphere. And I think one aspect of our contemporary political and social moment is that the kind of idea of a unitary public sphere in which we all participate has been slightly shattered. And so I think when we're considering what to publish and what not to publish, there is, I think, a sense of what are justifications and standards that are taken to be sort of understood and acceptable in our public sphere. So with Farage is the thought that it's almost impossible to imagine him having anything sufficiently interesting to say that it would be worth the ways in which it would somehow not just disrupt, but undermine what your readers expect of you. That there, there is that judgment to be made, that it's actually, it's dangerous and damaging simply because there are expectations and shared understandings that, that couldn't accommodate it. Well, I think you might say it would be damaging to your relationship with your own readers. There's a sort of adversarial way of looking at this, which I think is espoused by not necessarily people on the right, but by people who who are very worried about intolerance of disagreement or free speech or what they see as, quote, woke madness or cancel culture. And that view, I think, tends to suggest that a newspaper opinion page has a duty to kind of offend the sensibilities of its readers or a duty to provoke its readers. You know, look, nobody thinks that every opinion is as good as every other opinion, and nobody thinks that there are not some views or some people. You know, people tend to usually reach for sort of Nazis or something as a kind of easy example of this, who every newspaper would deem to be sort of beyond the pale. The question, I think, is where you draw that line. But I think more than that, the question is how you have that conversation with your own readers and what it is that your public sphere or your community takes to be justifiable. It's the job of the opinion editor, I think, to sort of push on those boundaries. But you have to have those justifications in mind, I think, as you're doing the work. So the New York Times is now having that conversation with its readers, but the opinion editor has lost his job. And one of the ways in which the New York Times itself is covering the news about itself is to say that this shows the power of people who work at newspapers against the people who would traditionally have been their bosses, and that there is a kind of uprising going on there too. I'm not asking if you have a feeling like that at The Guardian, but is that right? Has there been a shift there too? Is this reflecting a a significant shift in hierarchies of power within newspapers? Yeah. What I would say here is that a newspaper is like any other organization or any other institution including political institutions, which is that authority within a newspaper depends for its legitimacy on a kind of consent of the governed, so to speak. And I think what you're seeing at newspapers in America or or media organizations in America is that you have recently much more diverse staff, a younger staff, and you have people who I think are more alert to some of these concerns. One of the things that has been controversial in the New York Times case is that someone on the opinion desk tweeted in the midst of one of these Slack meetings, Barry Weiss, who's a kind of conservative opinion writer who was hired by James Bennett, that there was a civil war going on within the Times between young people and old people. And a lot of people took objection to this, especially older, non-white, senior New York Times figures 
who said, hang on, wait, you know, this is, I'm not, I'm not saying this because I'm young. So I think, you know, these institutions, maybe what I would say are political institutions. And I think I was very surprised to discover that James Bennett had stepped down. But I think what you are seeing in these internal disputes is a sense that if the leaders of an organization lose legitimacy among that organization's employees, then things have to change. Can you imagine yourself publishing this piece? Or or is it clear to you even without the benefit of hindsight that you wouldn't have? You know, one thing I think about this is that I think the New York Times slightly has traditionally tied itself in knots over this sense that there's an obligation to give a platform to, to these powerful figures. I don't think I have that same perception of the obligation in my role. I think you could imagine publishing a piece by someone other than Tom Cotton which said, there's a lot of chaos on the streets. What are we going to do to bring it under control? I mean, I'm not worried about this because I think I would have just said, you know, look, this, this, I don't see the value in this. You don't I, have it there, but for the grace of God feeling about well, it. Well, yes, of course you do. I mean, I think, look, every editor is terrified of overlooking something, of publishing something that's erroneous. I mean, it's, it's easy, I think, because we're in a kind of culture war moment for people to frame this as ideological, right? But you could just as easily publish something that contained an enormous factual error, or you could publish a piece by someone claiming to you know, have had a first-person acquaintance with some news event and they've hoaxed you or something like that, right? Lots of editors have been caught up by this kind of thing. So I think, yeah, part of being a journalist or part of being an editor is a sense of, you know, look, we need to be vigilant at all times because if we put something false out to the public, it's going to be bad. There may be professional consequences. There may be intellectual or social or political consequences. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, you, <laughs> you've got to be careful. <laughs> We're going to be talking in our regular slot about what's happening in the United States with different voices, different perspectives, and voices from people who are experiencing this violence on the ground. A different kind of conversation in our regular slot. Please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skide trætte af alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker.